Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Hey family, I hope you're ready for the Word of God. Today we're going to talk about understanding the faith. Last week we dealt with the substance of faith, that is the individual faith inside of us that enables us to believe God, but we have to have faith in something. And what is that something? Well, that's what we're talking about today, the faith as a belief system. So the text is in Jude, verse 3 and 4. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write unto you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord Jesus Christ. So today I want you to understand the importance of knowing what we believe as Christians. So my questions to you today are, do you know the difference between faith as a belief system and faith as a substance inside of your heart? Are you grounded in the faith is another important question. Or are you governed by your friends, family, emotions, or by the truth of Scripture? So we need to understand what the truth of Scripture is. And so there are certain essential truths that are necessary for any individual or organization or corporation or entity. We see this with the United States of America. We have a founding document called the Declaration of Independence. And in that declaration, it says that we've been given unalienable rights by our Creator so that we have the right to pursue justice and uh, happiness and liberty. And that is the founding document that shows why we broke away from England, from King George, and it lists many reasons why uh, we needed to do that. And as it was, it serves as our founding document. Then we have the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution refers back to the founding document of the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution basically doesn't show why we exist as a nation, but how we're going to govern ourselves. So you need both of those documents. And we see many of the attacks uh, going on in the last 20, 30 years against the Constitution. There's even been uh, people who wanted to amend it, revise it, even destroy it. And many of the things people are doing politically totally uh, ignore the Constitution. And why is this taking place? Well, they want to deconstruct the nation. If you get rid of the founding documents, then we don't have an understanding of why we exist. We don't have a set of beliefs that we all gather around. We don't have a common culture or core that we are all committed to or united for. And that's why people are trying to get rid of these founding documents. There are even many places in the public arena where you can't even read 
the Declaration of Independence. Many public schools for that matter because it mentions God. It's an offense to the uh, atheists. And so without the Declaration, imagine it's illegal to read the document that gives us our sense of purpose and gives us a reason to exist. Without that, well, the Constitution is giving us a document to govern a nation without any justification for existence. So that's why we have so many attacks. Well, this is why, uh, against those documents, this is why we need to know what we believe as a church. The Word of God contains the founding documents, starting with Moses, and then the prophets, and then uh, the, the Psalms, and the wisdom literature, all of this, and then the New Testament writings. You have the Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Epistles, the Book of Revelation. All of these documents show us why we exist. And there is a lot of doctrine in the writings of the Bible. And the doctrine is the faith that was once for all, note that phrase, once for all, delivered to the saints. Meaning there's not going to be a new revelation. There's not going to be another book added to the canon of Scripture. Somebody's prophecy will never be considered equal to the Scriptures because it's once for all delivered to the saints. So if there's any other teaching that's novel, that's never been taught before or uh, doesn't conform to the Bible, then we throw it out because that is what we're aligned with. It's been once for all, meaning God's not open for new revelation. There's not going to be new prophets giving new ways of living equal to the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. And so when we have things that have come up, like in the 19th century Mormonism, you have a guy named Joseph uh, Miller, I believe it was, um, uh, or he might have been the Seventh-day Adventist, actually. But you have Mormonism that started with an angel appearing and giving a new book, the Book of Mormon, based on writings supposedly uh, that were ancient, but it contradicts the Bible in many, many ways. Uh, Paul says, if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel rather than the gospel I have given you, let him be eternally condemned. That's how important what I'm talking about today is you better know your history, you better know the doctrine, you better know the belief system of the Bible, because if you don't, you're going to be susceptible to false doctrines and cults. And so when the Mormons ring your bell, do you know how to answer them? Or the Jehovah Witnesses, that's, a, that's another teaching that is deviated from the faith that is once for all given to the saints. Of course, then you have Christian science, you have Scientology, you have Islam, um, and then you have aspects of the gospel that have truth and error. You have the prosperity gospel. There's some truth in it, but it's un unbalanced. Uh, you have open theism. Uh, you have process theology, which is totally heretical, but it sounds very good in some ways. And since the Enlightenment, we've had the impression in humanity that just because time elapses, we're going to have more and more progress. And that might be true when it comes to science. That might be true when it comes to technology. Every year you have a new iPhone that comes out that's better than the previous iPhone. That's not so when it comes to 
quote-unquote revelation. There's never going to be any new teaching that's better than what's been taught the last 2,000 years. There's never going to be any new revelation. There may be some illumination of what God has already spoken, maybe a new twist, a new insight that people have not heard before, but it has to conform to Scripture, and it can't be a radically different approach to how we read the Bible and how we do church in terms of what we believe. Now, the methods change because technology changes, our culture changes, our context changes, our challenges change. So doing the Bible in culture means that we have to constantly adapt it to the changing norms and language in different situations we come across. We're called to do that. We change the methods, but we never change the message. We never change the essence of the message. So the essence of the message never changes. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 6, stand in the way and see. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. There you will find rest for your souls. And they said, we will not walk in it. So Jeremiah is admonishing the people, stand in the ancient paths. Don't look for something new. And the importance of this cannot be overstated because Jude says in verse 4 that those who have twisted the gospel, they have uh, been marked out for condemnation, actually. So when you change the doctrine of the Bible, that is a serious thing in the eyes of God. And as I already noted, Galatians 1, Paul says that someone will be eternally condemned, even if it's an angel that changes the gospel. It's important that we have sound doctrine, that we have biblical teaching, that we don't just have exhortation on Sundays, it's, or we don't just have feel-good messages or motivational messages, but some of the messages need to give sound doctrine, and there needs to be a place where we teach sound doctrine. As a matter of fact, in our church, we have a member's course that you have to learn certain things having to do with first principles, which we're going to talk about soon in this message. So if you're interested in taking first principles, get in touch with us. If you're interested in being a member, get in touch with us, because you'll learn some of the foundational doctrines. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words. In the Greek, the word sound means wholesome or healthy. Sound words. It's a system or pattern of teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, he warns Timothy, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound or healthy or wholesome or systematic wholesome teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And so here we see the admonition of Timothy to hold fast to the word that was given to him because there's going to be a time, and we've seen this today, when people have itching ears, they only want to hear a word that doesn't 
challenge their own belief system or challenge their sinful life or challenge their thinking. No, we want to hear the Word of God that not only challenges and convicts us, but also edifies and builds us up. And so we need to have not itching ears, but open ears to God so that we could hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Paul admonished the church to hold to the traditions. They are oral or written traditions that were passed down. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, he said, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word, that's oral transmission, or by our letter. And so there were certain bodies of literature and faith that Paul received from the original apostles and from the Lord himself that he handed down to the church. And he used these, quote unquote, traditions to establish individuals and churches. And many of these were formulas that he passed down. There were formulaic statements that helped people wrap their brain around the main essence of the faith, made it easier for them to remember. Some were poems, songs, some were oral traditions that he wrote down, and they gave people handles to know what they believed since they didn't have the luxury in those days of carrying around Bibles. That was way before the printing press, 1,500 years before the printing press. So they only had pieces of the Bible and parchments that they carried around. And so that's why there was oral traditions, there was letters written, and a lot of those people had to memorize large portions of Scripture in order to uh, be able to have a handle on the faith. And you might say, well, they were at a disadvantage. Well, maybe not. Maybe we are the ones at a disadvantage because we have everything at our fingertips. We don't think we need to memorize anything. There were people who had whole books of the Bible memorized because they didn't have Bibles in those days. And uh, if they saw a, a letter from Paul or a parchment of the Gospels or something of the Book of Psalms, they would value it more than silver or gold and they would uh, try to memorize it get it in their heart. And today, most of the church doesn't have much scripture memorized, if any scripture, because we could just pull up anything in a Bible. So the disadvantages, we have advantages, which cause us not to memorize scripture, not to keep it in our hearts. Some of the formulas or formulaic uh, passages that we have in the New Testament are the following, 1 Corinthians 11, we quote this every week. It's what we use for communion. Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which also I gave you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he broke the bread. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood. This was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. That's a formula. That's something they memorized. That's a tradition that was handed down. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. See the importance of that body of belief. He said, if you don't hold to this word that I preached, you have believed in vain. 
And then he describes part of the gospel. He says, and this again was a formula or something they memorized. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose from the dead the third day, according to the scriptures. Philippians chapter 2, we see the great passage. It was probably a poem that people memorized. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, let every knee bow, let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's Philippians 2, verse 5 to 9. That's something they memorized. It had to do with the uh, kenosis. Jesus emptied himself. He left heaven. He left the glory of heaven, took upon the form of a servant in human flesh. That's the great epic poem that describes the emptying of Jesus. What about Romans chapter 10? It talks about salvation. This is another thing people easily memorized. Paul said, the word is near you. They might say, well, what word? He said, the word that is in your heart, the word of faith, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with the mouth someone makes confession unto salvation, and it is with the heart someone believes unto righteousness. And then he says, for the scripture says, uh, or confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him is not put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew, Greek, or Gentile. And he says, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that was a portion of scripture that seems to have been formulaic, easy to memorize, something that people were able to have as a handle to help lead people to Christ and preach the gospel. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, if I am delayed, he's writing to Timothy, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So he's saying that the body of truth, the system of doctrine, the pattern of sound words has been entrusted to the church. And that's why the church was called the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the discerning vehicle, the discerning body that is supposed to weed out truth from error and be able to bring God's truth to the world. So we are the ground and pillar of the truth. We're not just here to have nice services, good worship and get excited and prepare for heaven, but we for the world have been the ones entrusted as the ground and pillar of what? The truth. We've been stewards of the truth. And this has been going on for 2,000 years. But then right after that, he gives a formulaic, uh, either a song or a poem. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Again, it's something having to do with Jesus's appearance, his coming. He said, God was manifest in the flesh. Wow, Jesus is God. If people understood this and knew this, then Jehovah's Witnesses would not be very popular. Neither would Mormonism. 
God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Talks about his advent, his ascension, everything in between. Isn't that amazing? Paul's goal was never to get a person to make a decision, but to make them a disciple. We see his goal here in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. He says, Jesus, the one we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. In the Greek, that's teleos, mature. We may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he wanted to perfect everyone, not just win people to Christ, not just make a thousand uh, decisions in the street for Jesus. His main concern was not winning people only, but discipling them. And so that's why when people got saved after the message of Peter in the day of Pentecost, it tells us that those who gladly received Peter's word were baptized and about 3,000 souls were added to that company of 120 in the upper room. And this is what they did. Acts 2.42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the doctrine, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And great grace was upon them all. So they were devoted not just to feel good messages, but to doctrine. Every day they sat in the temple and learned the doctrine of God. And we see the sermon of Peter, and we see the sermons even of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and Paul in Acts chapter 13, and they were immersed in the story of God, immersed in Scripture, constantly quoting passages. These people were committed to doctrine, to the gospel, to understanding the system of beliefs. Um, and that's what gave them discernment and power uh, as they prayed. And so our ability to discern the difference between truth and error and even imbalances of teaching develops as we're grounded in the first principles. So we need to be grounded in these first principles, not just worship a lot and not just pray a lot, but grounded in the first principles of the faith. Hebrews 4 shows us how this discernment comes. In verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Neither is there anything hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the word of God, this system of teaching is so powerful that it divides our soul from our spirit. It shows us what is of self and what is of God. Hebrews 5 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is chiding these Christians who are thinking of going back to the Old Testament ceremonial law. He said, for, for by this time you ought to have been teachers. You need someone to teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's only a babe. Unfortunately, many, many Christians, maybe most, are just babes in Christ. They just have a few pet passages they memorize for healing or prosperity or whatever, uh, to maybe to get saved. But 
you're a babe if that's all you know is a few pet, passage, pet passages. But then he says in verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature, those who by reason of use, using what? The scriptures, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the senses, the spiritual and, and mental acumen and, and intellect and the soul gets developed as we learn the first principles. And then in chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to what? Maturity. You can't mature without the first principles. Then he gives some of the first principles. He says, not laying again the foundation. So these first principles are the foundation of our faith. If you don't know them in and out, you are trying to live a risen life in a fallen world without a proper foundation. Some of the first principles are repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so we need to avoid novel teachings. We need to understand if they use a different language or a different method, it's okay. But if it's a different teaching than that which has been handed down to us from the beginning with doctrine that hasn't been confirmed by the historic church, it's dangerous. Why do we have apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists? Well, he tells us that God gave, in Ephesians 4.11, by the way, God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, for the what? The maturing of the saints, not just to win souls, to mature them. As we've already seen, you cannot mature if you don't know the first principles. For the maturing or the perfecting or the proper placement of the saints for the work of the ministry so that we become a full man into the fullness, grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ, that we be no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, Etc. So that's Ephesians 4. So the reason why you have people like myself is to ground you in the faith so that you'll be mature. We have a lot of babies in church because they've never taken time to learn the first principles. And so we need to understand the Word of God, not just a few pet passages, if we're going to have discernment and grow out of babyhood. And so the early church had a historic litmus test. It was developed by someone called Vincent of Lorenz in the fifth century. And basically, this is how they were able to discern truth from error. Number one, he said, does it conform to the apostolic witness of the first century church? Number two, was it received by all Christians everywhere? Every true Christian believed Jesus was God. They all believed in heaven and hell. Generally speaking, there were certain cardinal doctrines of the faith the whole church received. It had to bear witness with the writings in the New Testament. And number three, was there any church councils that debated this? There were many important councils in the body of Christ. The first one was in Acts 15 when they decided the fate of Gentiles. Did Gentiles have to circumcise 
themselves in order to be saved. And in other words, do they have to follow the law of Moses ceremonially? We know we have to follow the Ten Commandments, not for salvation, but sanctification. But do we also have to follow the ceremonial law to be saved? Well, that first general council in Acts 15 already decided that. But there were other councils in church history. Three very popular ones, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., determined that Jesus was indeed God the Son. Uh, he was God, but human at the same time. The Council of, of Constantinople not only affirmed the Council of Nicaea in 381, but also affirmed the deity or the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were looked at as all part of the Godhead. And then you have another very important one, the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 451, where it talked about the true nature and essence of Christ, which uh, means some things having to do with the fact that he had two wills, a human will and a divine will, even though he's one person. So there were councils that debated some of these things. We look back on these councils instead of just trying to figure out truth on ourselves. And fourth, was there theological consensus among the major teachers of the early church? And there was some general um, consensus by most of the great teachers of the first four to five centuries. So he wrote this in something called the Commonatory, Vincent of Lorenz. So there's, uh, he's backing up everything I'm saying. Does it apply based on what the Bible says? Did the apostles say it? And was it a truth that has been generally received by the church? Here's the hint. If what you're teaching was never practiced or taught in 2,000 years, is a very good chance it's not something that we should be teaching. We could use different language or methods. We could encase it in different forms, but it can't ever violate the essence of the message. So I wonder how would some of the teachings of today stand up under the scrutiny of Vincent of Lorenz's commonatory or of the writing of the New Testament? What about the hypergrace teaching where the focus is so much on God's love and grace, they never talk about repentance or faith. How would that stand up in terms of the historic church? Is that something that we should consider? Well, Jude says right there that some have taken the grace of God and turned it into a license for sin. Um, basically, if all you do is teach grace, but you don't bring out the holiness of God, it's unbalanced. It's not just the love of God, but tells us in the Psalms that God's foundation is on righteousness and justice. That's the foundation of his throne. So without that, love has lost its meaning. But until you understand the justice of God, you can't understand fully the grace and love of God. Uh, what about the courts of heaven? That's a teaching that's taken, you know, place by storm. We have to ask ourselves the question when we look at Scripture, like 1 Kings chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 5, Daniel chapter 7, other places in the Bible, who called the courts? Was it God, or can I instantly enter a court by praying with somebody? A legal jurisdictional process uh, of a court. What is that? Is that a, a technique? Does it have a lot of good truth? Probably yes. But is it a technique that can be abused? I think so. 
and I'd be careful to think that I could just call a court of heaven right away. So there's some, in my opinion, there could be some presumption there, even though some people I'm sure are using it in a good way, or they're at least they're attempting to. But uh, personally, I could never see Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle saying to somebody in the church of Ephesus, okay, come with me, I'm gonna take you to the courts. Uh, I just think he took them through the blood to the most holy place, got them to repent, got them to uh, be in Christ and got them to start walking in the benefits of a Christ follower. But there's more I could say. Um, how would all the teachings stand under scrutiny? We have to ask ourselves that question. The issue I have today with some of the prophetic is many don't admit mistakes when they're wrong. Many almost operate as if you're supposed to live your life based on their prophecies when Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecy is meant to edify, to exhort, to encourage, and even to correct, but it doesn't say to guide. That should only be the Holy Spirit inside of us but also getting counsel from your mature leaders. And so when people operate at a high level prophetically in their own mind, and they expect people just to listen to their words, they're almost putting their prophecies in the same level as scripture. And I think that's dangerous. We have to be careful with that. And so as I wrap this up today, my question to you is, are you just chasing the latest and greatest prophetic word or are you grounded in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Are you running after every new fad? As it tells us in Ephesians 4, they're, the children are the ones tossed to and fro by every new wind of doctrine. If that's you, you need to be rooted and grounded in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You should talk, uh, try to find out about our first principles. And most importantly, read your Bible from cover to cover at least once a year. Try to have a systematic approach to Scripture where you don't just open the Bible and read wherever you think God is leading you, but you start with Genesis, go all the way to Revelation, and try to read the whole Bible through at least once a year. If you read the New Testament, um, even just three chapters a day, you'll read the New Testament four times a year, I believe it is. So I try to read 10 chapters in the New Testament every day, so I go through the New Testament at least once a month. So you have to have some kind of ordered way of learning. Start with the scriptures, find out about first principles, get in a small group where we're going through the scriptures together. And this is the only way you're gonna mature. And this is the only way you're gonna have discernment to know the difference between right and wrong. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for everybody who's watching. We thank you that we have a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Help us understand a difference between our substance of faith that is invisible, but has evidence in our heart, and this belief system. We know, Lord, we could memorize many doctrines without having personal faith. We could also have personal faith that's limited because we don't know enough of the doctrines of the Word. So help us to have both. Help us to be people mighty in faith, 
who have knowledge and discernment based on the scriptures. I pray for every person who doesn't know you that they would come to know you as part of the first principles, the doctrine of Christ, that they would understand that Christ rose, that there is a judgment, and we're to have faith in God, and they're, gonna, they're supposed to get baptized to declare their faith. Father, that we would pull people in. We don't just want to win people, we want to disciple people. We just don't want people making decisions, but we want people continuing in the Word of Christ so that they would know the truth and be His disciples indeed. So, Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank you in Jesus' name that you're going to move. And if you don't know Christ, I already quoted uh, one of these pithy, formulaic, traditional sayings. Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's your God, he's your master, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Well, that is a promise of God. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you want to receive Christ, if you believe he died for you, that his blood was shed for you, that he rose from the dead and that he's here right now, I want you to just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for me, that he was punished for my sins, that he was buried and rose three days later. Come in my life, Jesus. Take me, I'm yours. And fill me with your spirit that I may follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.